Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so excited that you decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Michelle Reyes, who is the author of the brand new book, Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. And we're going to get into my conversation with her in just a minute. But if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I want to tell you a little bit about kind of the the purpose behind this podcast. And really what we want to do here is create a safe place to have difficult conversations because you've probably gone throughout life and maybe you've become curious about a lot of different subjects or different subjects in uh, that maybe you didn't know a whole lot about. And maybe you started asking questions. It could be of your parents, could be of teachers or coaches or friends or uh, even mentors as well. Or, um, or maybe it was in your church as well. And you started asking these questions and you started getting <laughs> responses like, why are you asking about this? Like, that's not important. Why does that matter? You know, it had very much... Um, fear-based answers to it or answers that, um, or maybe it didn't really feel like answers. Maybe it felt like, uh, like they were saying that you shouldn't even really care about those things. And either way, regardless of what it was, it felt very, uh, judgmental or, uh, or maybe even condescending or shame filled as well. And it just wouldn't go away for you. And so you kept asking the questions and you weren't able to find anyone to talk to. And I know that's part of my story as well. That's been, uh, it's just not as easy as, as you would think to be able to talk about um, things with anyone or with everyone. And so here in the Learner's Corner podcast, we want to create the type of place to where even if you don't have someone like that in your life, that maybe you can listen in on some of these conversations as well. And really, we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and sometimes and from everything and from anything as well. And in some of those cases, it's learning from positive examples of what people have done where where they feel like, hey, I, I've done a good job of responding to the situation or these are some of the things that keep me healthy. And then there's on the other side of things, this is where I messed up. This is where I failed. This is where um, this, these are some of the things that led me down a path of unhealth. And these are some of the things that maybe helped me become more healthy through that as well. We cover the gamut here on the Learner's Corner. And yeah. And so um, one of the things that I love to do is I love to uh, recommend uh, a resource as well. In addition to, you know, a lot of the times here on the podcast, we cover um, books and different conversations as well, which are which are great. And I know that uh, you love hearing from them as well. But if you're like me, you know, maybe you you buy the book and then it's like, man, I wish I could continue the conversation or continue to learn about this subject. And that's really what I want to do here on the Learner's Corner recommended resource section. And so today I'm recommending a book that uh, I just recently finished. It is by uh, the hip hop 116 artist Lecrae, and it is called I Am Restored. And the the subtitle is How I Lost My Religion But Found My Faith. And it's uh it's more of an autobiography of kind of his story of losing this faith after the experiences of his past um threatened to ruin his career and his life and just dealing with all of that. And uh Lecrae is someone that I love listening, I love listening to his music. I love um that whole 116 crew and listening or 116 click and listening to them 
And so uh, I had kind of followed the craze uh, story from uh, just from a distance and everything, and kind of known known about um, just the crisis of faith that he'd been experiencing, a lot of the backlash that he'd got from uh, from the greater like church from addressing you know uh, racial racial justice and systemic racism and beginning to talk about these things and the tension in our country. And so this is his story of kind of dealing with that and learning. Um, yeah, just his story of just walking through all of that and reconciling it with his faith. And so I really enjoyed it a ton. And again, for me being uh, you know, a fan of 116 and Lecrae, it was great. However, we're not talking with Lecrae today. Today, I'm honored to be talking with Michelle Reyes. And this is such a great... Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to you listening to this conversation. Her book is such a, a great idea that I absolutely love because it's framed around this passage of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which we talk about that as well. Uh, one note that uh, that I do want to give you is that we ended up, or on my end, I ended up having a couple of tef- technical difficulties on this. And so the conversation, uh, we recorded at two separate times. And so I think there's about, uh, for 15 minutes, we ended up having the one conversation and then uh, we pick it up right around where, uh, right around where we left off another time. So the full conversation is in there. It's split across two days, but for you, it is all one continuous experience in that. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Michelle. Michelle is a second generation Indian American author, speaker, and activist. She is the vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative. Um, We actually talked with uh, Raymond or Ray uh, a few episodes back from there as well. And he is the co-executive director or she, sorry, she is the co-executive director at PAX. She co-planted Hope Community Church with her husband and uh, and Hope Community Church as a minority-led multicultural church in East Austin, Texas. She's passionate about breaking cycles of injustice in the United States and helping inspire and equip the next generation to live out their callings at the intersection of their faith and culture. Her writings on faith and culture have been featured in Christianity Today, Missio Alliance, the Gospel Coalition, and many more as well. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Michelle Reyes. Well, Michelle, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me, Caleb. This is exciting. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, I uh, I would love to hear maybe the the five to 10 minute version of just kind of your story. You know, you've, you've come out with this brand new book called Becoming All Things. And I would just kind of love to hear uh, your story of what and what led you to write Becoming All Things as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll start by saying this. I wrote Becoming All Things because I love the church and my heart is for the church uh, and and specifically for the church to live out the biblical vision of multiculturalism that we see in Revelation 7, verse 9, in which we have this multi-ethnic, multicultural people of, of God around the throne, worshiping in different languages, you know, from different nations and tribes. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. And this is the picture that we have of the body of Christ that's going to be existing for all eternity, right? Uh, and if that is the vision of the future, 
then and if we truly want to live out our our, our prayer uh, for God to make His will done on earth as it is in heaven, then this is the reality that we need to be living into right now. And so, um, pursuing a multi ethnic body of Christ in the here and now should be an intentional pursuit. Um, now, the specific idea for Becoming All Things came back in the summer of 2018. My husband and I, we're church planters uh, in, in Austin, Texas. We lead a, a minority-led multicultural church called Hope Community Church. Um, and for us, being in a historically you know, segregated and disadvantaged Black and Brown community, vocational ministry for us every day means crossing cultures to connect with our neighbors and to care for those around around us. And so uh, even more than that, conversations that we were having with our own congregants, uh, with, with friends and even people online was, was I kept hearing this recurring conversation of like, where do we start? Like how, like when it comes to connecting across cultures, like how do we even begin doing this? And then a second question was just, how do we like not mess this up? Like <laughs> How do I just not go about every day offending everybody <laughs> that I'm around? <laughs> which is a which is a, a real question and it's speaking to a real fear. Um, and and the more one-on-one conversations that that I was having with folks that my husband and I were having with our church, uh, just the more I sensed a calling to write a book that addressed these these very issues and to do so one through the lens of scripture to be to be so rooted in the gospel, uh, and then to share alongside of that stories from our vocational ministry, and then also stories from my own life as a second generation Indian American woman. And so, um, you know, in many ways, the clearest message that I want the church to hear from my book, uh, but also from scripture, uh, is, is that there is a fuller blessing to be received when we truly value and embrace all peoples. Uh, and, and, and this goes back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, in which, uh, you know, every person is made in the image of God. Uh, and, 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 and when we value the cultural identity of, of, of the people around us, we begin to see a greater picture of who God really is. Uh, and so hearing from, learning from, even being led by 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 other people of other cultures is 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 actually how we can strengthen our faith and and deepen our love for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say, and just as I was preparing for our conversations, one of the things uh, just that I saw in your background is that uh, you have set, like a couple of degrees in like German <laughs> studies and <laughs> stories and everything, which I absolutely I love. I love seeing that and people have like, yeah. it feels like, man, this feels so out there um, <laughs> or unrelated to everything else. But, uh, totally. but that's not how we work as people. I know that it affects us. And so I wanted to ask, how has that study of, you know, German story and, and liter- literature and all of that, how has that affected your work today and who you are? Yeah. Well, I, I, I like to jokingly say I have a, a checkered <laughs> professional career uh, because, yeah, I began at the academy. I have a PhD in 18th century German literature. Um, I'm a folklorist by trade. So I taught, uh, you know, historically German, Italian, French folklore. I also taught feminist folklore, if, you know, feminist revisions of folklore. Um, that's my heart. I just, literary analysis, even like, Literary, literary analysis of, of scripture. Uh, that's that's where everything started. Um, yeah. But what I love about what and what what drew me to folklore in the beginning is that you know, folk tales are as they sound. They are tales of the folk. So these are stories about the poorest, 
people in the land, you know, um, people that have no political, financial, social capital of any kind. And they're experiencing all of these difficulties of life, whether it's hunger, um, you know, disease, death, uh, to then also real abuse, political oppression and whatnot. And the question in, in all of these stories beyond just, how, you know, how does one survive? <laughs> like the, the, to live happily ever after for a peasant is just to still be alive, you know, first of all, at the end of the story. But then second is the question of justice. How is it that somebody who has zero power, zero privilege, zero resources, how do they engender uh, justice for themselves or perhaps for their community. And this is where narrative justice comes into play. And narrative justice simply means uh, to promote the first person story uh, or the first person voice of the oppressed. Uh, and, and so in so many folk tales, the person who's been abused or who is suffering learns to tell their story, learns to share it with the people around them. And then usually communally or collectively, people begin to work towards justice for that individual. Um, and so, you know, I, I stepped out of the academy. I'm, I'm, I have now one foot back in the academy uh, in, in that my husband is uh, the academic dean for a seminary here in East Austin called Vida House. It serves, uh, you know, black and brown Christians who want to pursue vocational ministry, but but it's it's a non-traditional seminary in the sense that it doesn't require you to have a bachelor's degree. Uh, it offers um, you know discounted tuition and things like that. Uh, where I also you know serve as core faculty, but I've taken this concept of narrative justice to the streets of East Austin, uh, and 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 the pursuit of narrative justice informs how my husband and I do vocational ministry uh, for our church because getting to know real people who have suffered real injustices and equipping them to raise their voice and to to to, to have their story shared. Uh, and, and to be heard by our mayor, uh, by our local police chief, by by our senators, uh, is how we work towards real change uh, and, and, and pass towards healing and restoration in our community. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's sort of an out-of-the-box approach, <laughs> but it is a way in which my time in the academy and, and my uh, time as a folklorist has, has now actually come into play for vocational ministry, and that's that's kind of fun. Yeah. T talk to me about the the impact that you've seen from helping um, from from helping the oppressed be seen by maybe uh, people in power through that and the impact that it's made on um, not only the, the people who are oppressed, but the surrounding community mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, sure. So I'll, I can give two examples. Uh, you know, our church itself, we are over 50% uh, Latino, so we're bilingual English and Spanish, and, and many of uh, the folks in our church are immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, um, you know, and the community that we live in, like ice raids happen across from our playgrounds, like my children have witnessed ice raids, uh, and so we have not only neighbors, but also congregants who have been you know, separated families and spouses that mm -hmm. have been separated. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so one of the things that we try to do is just educate people in our, our city <laughs> because there, I mean, 
there are churches who don't have any immigrants in them and who don't who don't know even what DACA is or, or who dreamers are or even really what's happening on the ground when it comes to the immigration crisis at the border. And so we've organized a few citywide conferences where um, in an effort to flip the script, instead of, you know, a bunch of us as, quote, scholars, like talking about immigration, we invite immigrants from the community to share their stories. Uh, and at the last conference that we had, which was about a year ago, we we had um, a man from Nigeria who had fled um, political persecution. He had taken a boat to Brazil and then literally walked <laughs> through the jungles of Brazil all the way up to the Mexican border, um, you know, to get into the United States. And, and during that time, he like got a disease, like some sort of bacteria got in his hand Um and when he got to the Mexican border, they put him in jail uh, with no medical care. And so like his hand is all now uh, like um, deformed and things like that. But he has um, he has like a math degree, like he's incredibly smart, like he's an engineer. Um, and so he was sharing his story about why he fled his home country, how much he misses his family, but also just like like, I promise you, I'm not a threat to your country. Like, I'm not here to hurt anybody. I'm just, uh, I'm going, I'm going to work hard. I'm smart. Like, I'm, I'm, I, I love America, you know, and just, you could just hear his pleading to this, this Christian audience to say, please see me as your, as your neighbor and as your friend. Like, I'm, I, I love this country. That's why I came here. I'm not a terrorist or a threat or anything like that. And, um, it was really powerful. It was really powerful to see, um, you know, the churches that came just to, to like demystify immigrants and to be yeah. like, okay, uh, we need to sort of counter this narrative that everybody crossing our border is a threat to us. Um, and then a second example is that uh, my husband and I, we're also, uh, we formed a local CCDA network, Christian Community Development Association. Um, and through our connections with CCDA, we were able to get on a phone call with Senator Ted Cruz uh, and just invite congregants uh, to share their stories and talk about what they're doing here in Austin, why they came here, why they immigrated here, uh, their real needs, what they would like Cruz to know. Um, and it was a really helpful conversation in terms of like, how do we pursue immigration reform? So those are those are some of the ways in which we pursue narrative justice as a church um, yeah. that not only educates, but actually tries to seek real uh, policy change. Yeah. Uh, and go going back to your book, Becoming All Things, I think just as I was preparing for our conversation and uh, re reading through and listening to uh, some of the interviews that you've done before and really the premise of the book, it's one of the most powerful things to me is how you tie it back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and hearing those verses in the context of cross-cultural relationships, which I personally had never heard before, yeah. is so powerful. Would you mind just unpacking that and like, Tell us, I would love to hear the story of like you first encountering that and the impact that that scripture has had on you. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, it was a, it was a few years ago now. I was rereading through First Corinthians and I got to that passage in chapter nine. Uh, you know, my, my whole book is built off of uh, chapter nine, verses 19 through 23, in which Paul says to the Jew, I became like the Jews to win the Jews. Um, and then even to the 
he's speaking to those not under the law, meaning Greeks and Gentiles, uh, to those not under the law, I became like one not under the law to win those not under the law. Um, and, and he goes on to say, I became all things to all people uh, for the sake of the gospel. And, and I remember reading that and having it hit me for the first time in a different way. And I kept going back to that first phrase, to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. And I, I, it was like a light bulb went, went on for me. And I was like, what in the world does Paul mean by this? Like Paul himself is a Jew. So how is it that somebody who is a Jew needs to become like a Jew? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and as the, the more I started to, to kind of go back and, and, and look at Paul's life and the ways in which he, he interacts with all peoples, including fellow Jews, you start to see that the Jewish world of the first century is not monolithic. You know, Paul himself yeah. is a Pharisee, uh, but there are also Sadducees, there's Essenes, there's Zealots, there's people of the land. There's so many different types of, of Jewish peoples. There's also the Samaritans that are like a mixed uh, group. And, and when you see Paul interacting with these different groups, you see that he actually adapts how he speaks, how he interacts with these different Jewish groups uh, who all shared a similar ethnicity to himself. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a powerful statement to make that each of us are unique cultural beings. Uh, we're not monolithic cultural groups. You know, you, you, you can line up 10 Indians or 10, quote, white Americans or, you know, 10 Africans or, or whoever. And we'd all be so different, uh, which is which is why I like to say I'm like all Indians. I'm like some Indians and I'm like no other Indian. Um, and, and if I am different from other Indians, how much more so would I differ from folks with 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 different ethnic roots and, and cultural heritages? And so. Um, I have been encouraged from that passage in 1 Corinthians 9 that like Paul, my aim should be to learn how to adapt the way that I speak, that I interact with, uh, behave and connect with every single person uh, in a way that makes sense to them and their context and to do that uh, for the sake of the gospel. Well, Michelle, so excited that we were able to uh, have a part two of this conversation happening since uh, because of some technical difficulties on my end of stuff. Um, yeah, I'm just really glad that we're able to continue the conversation and everything. Yes, likewise. Likewise. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and just as uh, as we're continuing kind of where we left off, I know uh, that we had talked about, you know, really the the scripture that kind of forms a lot of your book, Becoming All Things, um, with it being 1 Corinthians chapter 9 mm-hmm. and everything, and becoming all things to all people. And I just kind of wanted to ask as we continue, um, what does that look like for you? Like, what does like becoming all things to reach all people, uh, what does that look like? on like a day in day out basis. Yeah. So good. So good. Well, I feel like I say so many things. I'll first start by just explaining the impetus for why I was even drawn to first Corinthians nine, 19 through 23. Um, because I, you know, I'd read first Corinthians nine or first Corinthians so many times throughout my life. And, you know, I studied it in school and read it in church. And it was a few years ago where I was reading it again. And the part in verse 20 where Paul says to the Jew, I became like a Jew to win the Jews, it like stuck out at me 
anew for the first time. And I literally read that verse over and over again, thinking, what in the world does this mean? Because Paul was a Jew, uh, you know, and, and I was trying to wrap my mind around this idea of like, what does it mean for Paul, who is a Jew, to become like a Jew? What does that even mean? Uh, it'd be like saying like, me as an Indian trying to become like an Indian. On the one hand, it's like, I don't understand what's going on. And so just kind of digging deeper into like what Paul is is saying here and looking at his life and ministry. And you get a sense that, and and, and we see this from the first century world, there was not one type of Jew. Uh, The Jewish people were not a monolith. Uh, they were very diverse. Paul himself, uh, you know, was was a Pharisee. Uh, and not only that, but he was part of the educated elite. Uh, but then, you know, there were Sadducees, there were Essenes, there were Zealots, people of the lands, a wide swath of people that fell under the umbrella of Jewish, even Samaritans, uh, you know, more of a, a mixed group. Um, and what Paul is saying well, one, I think that's a provocative thing to, you know, to proclaim in the first century world. But then two, Paul is saying that he is, is challenging himself to learn how to adapt in his, his behavior, his dress, his speech, to connect with his fellow Jewish peoples. And I thought, what, what, a, what a great challenge that is for us today. I, I mean, the same could be said for any ethnic group. You know, for myself, I'm a second generation Indian American. You could line up 10 Indians uh, and we'd all be so different. Like in, Indians are not a monolith. Asians are not a monolith. Americans are not a monolith, right? And so the challenge, I think, that first the Paul is giving us in 1 Corinthians 9 is to see each person as a unique individual with their own unique cultural identity and ethnic roots. Um, and to not think that, oh, just because I have one Asian friend and we get along super great, that means I'm going to know how to connect with all Asians, <laughs> yeah. you know, or, oh, I have one black friend. Therefore, I know how to talk and interact with all black people because we're, we're just, we're all so unique. None of us are a monolith. And so, um, and if I am different from other Indians, how much more will I differ, differ from people of other culture groups and, 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 and ethnicities? And so um, my aim is to learn how to adapt the way I speak and, and act and um, my body language and my posture um, to connect with every single person for the sake of the gospel. And so that's really what, what catalyzed uh, my, my research anew, my study and love anew of 1 Corinthians 9 verses 19 through 23. Um, and I think practically this, this, this can mean a few things. Um, one, I, I think it's a challenge for us like it says in James chapter one, to be slow to speak and quick to listen is to, we need to be uh, students of people to walk into a room, to walk into our church, our workplace, our school, and to kind of survey the, the people. Uh, how are people engaging? How are they talking? What is their body language? What is their posture? Are they speaking loudly or quietly? Uh, are they speaking right away or waiting for pauses? Um, you know, all of these sorts of mannerisms and and to kind of think through, okay, how can I adapt my, my tone, uh, even my vocabulary, um, whether I'm six inches apart from them or three feet apart from them, all of those sorts of things can communicate so much 
you know, so I think that's that's like just step. If we can be students of people, slow to speak and and quick to listen, we will start to get a feel for okay, oh, this is what makes this person unique. This is what makes them tick, and I can I can adapt myself to communicate with them in a way that makes sense to them and 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 not in a way that is shameful to us or in a way that we're hiding who we are um but in, in a way that is christ-centered and for the sake of the gospel mm-hmm. uh do you have any questions that like you just love to ask people as you're getting to know them and like and to help them see as that individual that you were talking about yeah i mean two questions just right off the bat Mm-hmm. I love asking people, and I think are like easy questions to ask people is one, what is your story? And two, what are your ethnic roots? Um, and I, I love asking that question because one, it immediately helps me understand more of that person's life and story. Uh, but then two, you know, people then begin to define themselves. Uh, you know, when it comes to say Asians or Latinos, they might say I'm first, second, third generation. Um you know, oftentimes immigrants to our country, they, they, they'll they say, you know, I'm just, I'm Colombian or I'm Nigerian or um, I'm Pakistani or something like that. It's second generation and on that they'll say I'm Indian American or I'm African American or, or, or whatnot. And so you give people the honor of self-definition uh, and then we can use the vocabulary they've used to define themselves. And that that is so honoring. So um, one, it's a way to, to, to learn each other's stories better and, and two, to, to honor each other in the words that we're using. Yeah. I know that one of the things that you talk about uh, in this book, which, uh, which if you're listening, you might've thought about this as well, is you talk about code switching as well as it concerns this conversation. And for, for people who may not be familiar with it, would you mind just kind of you know, tell them this is what code switching is and how becoming all things to all people is is maybe different than that. Yeah. So on the one hand, code switching is something that we all do in different contexts. It's like on a big picture, code switching is like putting your best foot forward. It's like presenting the very best image of yourself. And, you know, we do that if we're going in for a job interview or we're like starting to date somebody. <laughs> like we want them to see this very great pic, like we could do no wrong, uh, you know. But And so on the one hand, I think that's part of the human condition. Uh, but on the other hand, when it comes particularly to minorities, to subdominant cultures, when it comes to code switching, it's like that, that voice in your head that tells you like, okay, you've got this, just act white. Um, the, the, the best foot forward that you could do is to pretend like you act and speak like a, or dress like a white person. Um, and in many ways, this is a mechanism of survival. It's it's something that, that a lot of folks, including myself, internalized very early on because we were we were made fun of, we were shamed. Um, I talk about this in my book, but you know, if you've ever seen the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I resonated so much with that that young girl um, because I was I was the one that brought uh, homemade Indian food to school, and kids wouldn't sit at the lunch table with me because no one even knew what Indian food was back then. Right. And so all of a sudden it's like, I don't want to bring Indian food to, to, to school because kids make fun of me. Okay. I'm going to start asking my mom to make me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and and chips and, and 
get me that little brown paper bag because that's what all my white classmates bring to school. And, and, and so like, that's a very minor example of code switching, but you know, it can, it can translate to not wanting to wear clothes from your ethnic background. It can, it can mean not speaking your, your mother tongue. It can mean, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, Asians, a lot of Indians joke about um, having brown weekends and white weekdays, you know, because you're, you're with your, your Indian community on the weekends, going to Indian church, speaking in uh, an Indian language, dressing in Indian clothes, talking and, and, and engaging in a certain way. And then when you go to school during the week, you dress different, you talk different. Um, and so on the one hand, what I didn't want to communicate in this book, which is all about cultural accommodation and, and learning yeah. to adapt how you speak and behave with one another, is I didn't want to communicate to historically disempowered people and to minorities to just keep pretending to be white and to be ashamed of who they were and hiding their cultural identities. I, I don't I don't think that's what scripture um, says. I don't think that's what the Apostle mm-hmm. Paul is, is, is arguing for. Um, because on the one hand, uh, we see throughout all of scripture that God intended cultural identities for good, uh, that our God-given cultural identities reflect God's image in the world, that this is something to, um, in, 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 a, in a godly way, to take pride in, to be proud of who God made us with our skin color and our ethnic roots and, and all of this. Um, and so we need to have that cultural pride of, of who we are. And then at the same time, to, to think through, okay, when is it that my love, my love for Christ and my love for the church and my love for the gospel compels me to not quit on someone? <laughs> you know, um, there are open, openly racist people out there that will gaslight you, that will, that will emotionally abuse you, that will have no consideration for your words. I'm not saying you have to like persevere in conversations with those people. I think there are a lot of folks within the church, fellow brothers and sisters, who don't yet get it, that are ignorant to some of the the histories uh, and systems and issues of our day, and yet could the love of Christ compel us to say, okay, what you just said was really hurtful, (laughs) but I'm not quitting on you (laughs) because I'm I'm compelled to, to lovingly invite you to a better way, to, 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 the, to the way of Jesus and to the way of, you know, the biblical vision of the church. Um, and so I'm going to keep thinking through how I can communicate these hard truths and loving ways to you in a way that you're going to get it, you know, and, and, and yeah. you're going to get it, not in the room, <laughs> in, yeah. in, yeah. in a way that you're going to yeah. understand it. <laughs> Um, yeah, because the reality is, uh, when you're when you're talking with 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 um, Asian Americans, African Americans, Anglo Americans, uh, you know, you have to present things in, in in different ways. And so, how do we not quit on people and say, "I'm going to keep fighting to figure out how to present these hard truths to you in a loving, invitational way, so that we can keep journeying together." And that's what I'm talking about, not historical code switching that disempowers people. Yeah. I, I would be curious just to ask you of how do you manage that tension? Because like that, that is, I mean, you speak to it and that is just such a real thing, especially for, um, well, it's not just, it's not just a thing of today. It's been a thing all throughout history. Yeah. Um, it's just very prevalent maybe mm-hmm. right now. 
And I would just love your thoughts on how, how do you manage that tension between, okay, this, this person is, you know, through their words or through their actions is, you know, maybe doing harm to me or to, to whoever the person is listening. And yet, you know, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's maintaining that, that love and just figuring out that. Yeah. 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 Uh, One, (laughs) that's such a hard thing to do. I think that is like an ongoing conversation we need to be (laughs) having is how do we, how do we do this well? And I think in the vein of each person being a unique being, I think our response is going to differ from person to person, certainly. Uh, although a, a few things that I've learned along the way is, is one, getting defensive and getting angry um, usually doesn't get me anywhere. And I, I think there is place for righteous anger, for for uh, holy anger, if you will. But But as it says in scripture, like righteous anger is only for the purpose of like bringing people to God. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. so if your if your anger is like just burning people, I'm going to argue it's not righteous anger. Yeah. Um, but that being said, n- not be not being quick to anger, not being quick to defensiveness, um, and then second, even when people are hostile or aggressive towards me, I have found that usually there is there is some sort of hurt or confusion on their end. Perhaps they themselves feel misunderstood um, in some way. And so I have to find a way to say, okay, no, please, no, I care about you. I do want to hear your side. And I give them the space in conversation over coffee, over a meal. These things are best done over meals and around kitchen tables. Let me hear your side. Now let me tell you my side. And let's let's see how we can peaceably be friends and, and and figure this out. And and finally, I have found that just outright criticism and saying like, well, that was racist or well, that was horribly offensive, it doesn't yeah. help the person. It it'll it'll probably shock them, it'll probably make them feel guilty, but that doesn't mean they'll know how to do things differently the next time. Uh and so what I've learned is, is when somebody says or does something, particularly in the church, then I'm like, wow, that was, <laughs> that was a horrible misstep. I'm thinking that in my mind, my approach is to go to them and share them how their words or their actions made me feel like, Hey, that, mm-hmm. that didn't sit well with me or, Hey, that, that was really hurtful. And then I provide an alternative. Would you consider next time saying this instead? Would you consider doing this this way next time. And I think that sort of loving invitation to a better way, most of the time people are open to that, you know, just being outright criticized. No one likes that. But if you can say, Hey, I care about you. This hurt me, but could you try this instead? That usually allows for, for, for more peaceable and loving relations. Uh, And I think truly is what we're hoping for in terms of edifying the church. Yeah. Uh, one of the quotes that you have that I think really ties into this uh, well or expands on the conversation, I would love uh, just your your expanded commentary on is, you know, you write that the problems inherent in cross-cultural relationships have to do with us individually. And I think it's so true that sometimes we could think of, well, it's the uh, it's the other person that is causing <laughs> all <laughs> that is causing all of this tension. Um, yeah. Can you just 
can you just elaborate on that? And maybe, yeah, just would you mind just elaborating on that? Yeah. Um, well, I'll say this as a caveat. I don't, I don't like to be labeled one way or the other progressive conservative. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's such a wide swath of peoples. It, I think in many ways, those two categories reflect a certain extreme opinion on both ends of the spectrum. And I think a lot of us are just more <laughs> in this middle ground. Yeah. Um, but I will say that I did grow up in a very conservative Northern Baptist uh, space uh, in, in Minnesota, where the only thing that I was taught, and this includes from my Christian school and from my church growing up, was that the problems inherent in race were um, the people suffering, if you will, from different communities of color, that they had brought those problems on themselves. Um, you know, that they, because of laziness, because of, um, you know, choosing to be criminals, because of, you know, fill in the blank. And, and that was the only message I heard growing up. And I think that's a message that we still hear in a lot of conservative Christian circles is that um, I'm not going to help this person because they brought that on themselves <laughs> or yeah. they're just making this up, you know? And, uh, and so what I've, what I've learned as an adult, particularly in doing vocational ministry within East Austin, which is a historically disadvantaged black and brown community, historically segregated is you begin to see the bigger picture. You begin to see the systems and the histories and the forces that are at play that really do marginalize people despite their best efforts, despite knowledge and skill and desire and all these sorts of things. Um, And so one, I think that's sort of a meta level shift is um, engendering with us empathy and compassion. Uh, and, And when people are talking about the injustices they've experienced and 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 the pains that they're going through instead of that knee-jerk reaction of like, well, that's not my problem. <laughs> like you, yeah. like you got yourself in that mess, like, you know, get yourself out kind of thing, or that American mentality of like just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of thing. Um, I, I don't think that's the Christian way. I don't think that's the biblical way. Uh, we see Jesus constantly caring for the people on the margins in his ministry, and, and we should do the same. Um, and then I think too. With that is seeing our own culpability and seeing our own um, either personal or collective uh, involvement in playing into those pains. Uh, and, and, and that's a whole bigger conversation, but I think mm-hmm. what is applicable and, and a first step for folks just wading into this conversation for the very first time is, is learning to be more comfortable with saying, I'm sorry. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's so hard for us to apologize for anything, let alone issues of race. Uh, And and so just even saying, I'm sorry, how can I help? Like, I I, want to do better. How can, how, how can I do better? And I think, I think that can open up so many good conversations, healing conversations. Um, And so that's, that's just a word of encouragement for people listening in is, is how can we, instead of just pointing fingers and saying, ah, it's your fault, you know, mm-hmm. uh, help your, you know, figure out how to help yourself out, but say, no, I, I need to be proximate. I need to be involved. Our stories are interconnected. I need to care about my brother and sister suffering and even 
ask the Lord to open my eyes to the ways in which I need to do better to, to, to confess, to repair, um, to, to put their interests above my own and, and being willing to say, I'm sorry, how, how yeah. can I help? Yeah. Uh, a couple other questions that I want to ask you, maybe sh- shifting the conversation a little bit is one. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, in terms of uh, Indian history throughout the world or even throughout America, what are what are some of the historical moments that have really stood out to you in terms of uh, not not only obviously your your family's background, but just like yeah. wow, like these are these are some events in history that maybe don't get covered a lot, or it's like these are these are really important. Yeah, to me. yeah, I really appreciate you asking that question. Yeah. Um, I'll say two things. First, I think it's important for Indians and and South Asians to be con- considered and called Asians. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think so often, especially in this last year with anti-Asian racism, where people have asked like, but you're Indian, so you're not really Asian, right? So like, yeah. this, like this issue doesn't even matter to you or shouldn't matter to you or, you know, fill in the blank. But I think it's important to understand the term Asian American. It's not a cultural term. It's not representing a, a, a cultural um, group in any way. It's, it was a term coined by a historian, uh, Yuki Ichioka, um, in 1968. Uh, it was part of an Asian American political alliance from out of UCLA. And it was a term that was created to encourage folks to embrace um, equality, anti-racism, and anti-imperialism. And so the term Asian American is not a, an identity that's chosen. Uh, or I'm sorry, it is chosen. It's not one that's forced or, or given to a, to a, to a group. Um, and to be Asian American reflects a mutual commitment, a mutual experience of suffering, really, uh, alongside Korean Americans, Chinese Americans, Filipino Americans, and to say, okay, we're all in this together. Uh, and Indian Americans have suffered racism in this country. And we've experienced uh, racism sort of like... In this last year, I've been told to go home, like go home to your country, you know, and I'm like, what do you mean? Go home to South Carolina? Like that's where I was born. Um, or 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 just uh, like anti-Asian racism isn't just directed at Chinese Americans. It's been directed yeah. at all of us. And so it, it's going to take all of us to work together to deconstruct it. So that's why I embrace the term Asian American. I think I just want to share that because it's, it's important yeah. to understand why we have the terms that we do. Um and speaking of anti-Indian racism, um, I, I'll, I'll say this. On, on March 16th of this year, the Atlanta massacre, when six Asian women were, were murdered, the one, the one of the first thoughts that came into my mind, that was it was like a triggering memory, was from 2017, when a white supremacist mistook two Hindu Indian uh, engineers for, for Iranians, and he gunned, he gunned them both down in Kansas. That happened in 2017. Um, and then actually the very next month, uh, a Sikh man was, was shot and killed right in his own driveway as people were shouting, uh, I think this happened in Seattle, as people were shouting, go back home to your own country. Um, and even after 9-11, uh, the very first person that was murdered after 9-11 was a Sikh man who was misidentified <laughs> as a Middle Easterner and as a, as a terrorist, but he was Indian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then even in, I think, the past few months, a Pakistani Uber driver was, was driven off the road and, and killed by two teenage girls. Um, there was a shooting at a FedEx facility in Indiana where, where six 
I think it was six Sikh men were, were, were murdered. Um, so South Asians are also the victims of, of, of anti-Asian racism. And so, um, yeah, I, I it, it's not covered as much in the news, certainly. Yeah. Um, even just recently, a Pakistani girl was walking home from school and an unidentified man ran up to her with a, with a cup full of acid and threw it in her face. Um, and she's horribly disfigured from it now. And, and police are still trying to figure out the motivation for that hate crime. Um, so it, it, it's real, it's happening, it's not isolated. Um, and, uh, and, and so I hope people, people will see this, understand this, and also adapt their vocabulary accordingly to understand yeah. why Indians and South Asians should be, should also be called Asian Americans uh, as, as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for, well, first of all, thank you for correcting me and letting me know that as well. Um, I guess the, the last thing that I want to ask you about is what, what is something that you have, or it could, or it could be multiple things. Um, but what are some of the things that you've learned about God that you would say, like this is because of me learning, uh, because of my Asian American, you know, history. That that maybe um, it's harder for for white people like myself or people um, who who aren't Asian American or Asian Asian to learn about God. Yeah, I love that question because inherent in it is this this idea that we all need each other. <laughs> yeah, for us to grow in our understanding of who God is. We have to understand and 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 be in connection with all of our neighbors. I love that. Um, you know, it's it's funny uh, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus in 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 the Gospels when Jesus is like, "Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm gonna come, I'm gonna come eat with you." Every time I read that story, I'm like, "This is so Indian," <laughs> and it's it's funny because. Um, you know, the way my mom was raised as in an Indian village, the way I was raised um, is just to have this open door hospitality and anybody can come at any time of day uh, and you're going to welcome them into your home and, and, and certainly feed them, most likely have a cup of chai. Like that's not disputed, but but equally, there is the the, the gift of uh, receiving hospitality of of coming over to somebody's house unannounced though saying hey i'm coming over right now or even not even uh, you know texting or calling and just showing up you know and it's it's so funny because i've had to learn maybe the hard way of like oh not everybody thinks this way cuz you know i've i've shown up at friends house you know or even neighbors house i'm like hey what you doing right now you want to hang out and they're like no i'm busy <laughs> like oh okay <laughs> never mind <laughs> maybe we need to schedule this and and not to say that i'm against scheduling dinners or hangouts mm-hmm. or whatnot but it is so indian to have that very flexible fluid understanding of time and open doors and just showing up and saying hey i'm coming to your house today <laughs> you know yeah. um and i think there's something beautiful about that that cuts against our western grain of 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 busyness and everything scheduled and organized and planned um we don't always do well with impromptu uh meals and gatherings because we're like oh we you know we need to we need to clean our house and 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 we haven't stocked our fridge and all of this and i think um whenever i read particularly the gospels and i see the stories of, of of people eating together that to me always speaks 
to my own cultural heritage and identity. And I just, yeah. I'm drawn to that. And so, um, yeah, so that, that, that's how I'd answer that, that question. The, the Jesus is a impromptu showing up at people's homes and eating together. It's just such a beautiful reflection of, of, of Asian and Indian culture as well. Yeah, I love that so much. Just the power of spontaneity, and it's so true. We need we need more of that, especially in the world <laughs> in which we live. In. Uh, well, Michelle, is there? I know that we've we've talked about a lot of stuff. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that it's like, hey, whether whether it be about the book or whether it be um, about anything else that hey, I want to make that I just want to give you the opportunity to share anything else that you're currently thinking about. Or you want to make sure Man, uh, that mean, people I, know. I, I think we've covered a lot. Certainly, um, <laughs> yeah. I'll just I'll just reiterate. Um, I think there's a lot of ways in which my book can be used. I think I'm excited to hear that there's professors that are going to be using my book in, in the academic setting and, and, and parents that are reading this book with their children. Um, and so I'm excited for all those different uses. But I just want to reiterate, like I wrote this book primarily for the church, um, out of yeah. love for the church. And I hope that this is a, a book that can resource the church in, in a way that feels like it's speaking to black, brown, and white, that we can all come to the table together uh, metaphorically and, and hopefully literally with some good food and, and, and some, some, some good drinks in the mix. And, uh, and to say, Hey, you know, we, we're all coming from different places. A lot of us are hurting. Um, a lot of us have tried connecting across cultures and it's not gone well. And now we have some of those inhibitions and those, those fears and concerns. And, and how can we, how can we, you know, bring that into the light address that um and also say okay let's let's chart a new path forward and so that's my hope and prayer um that yeah. this this will inspire and equip fellow brothers and sisters in the lord to keep going to persevere uh and 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 if they've tried in the past and it hasn't gone well to to feel in, encouraged by the word of god to try again yeah well, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book and continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for people to go to do both of those things? Sure. Uh, well, I finally got organized and I have a website. <laughs> so people can go to michelleamireyes.com. Um, I have a few like freebies people can download. You can sub sub subscribe to my monthly newsletter where I also mm -hmm. usually offer some... some um, practical how-tos, small steps to connect across cultures. Uh, and then I'm all in all the usual social places on Twitter, Dr. Michelle Reyes, and on Facebook and Instagram, Michelle and me Reyes. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks so much just for, for doing the work and for sharing it with me and with, uh, with the Learner's Corner. Amen. Thanks for having me, Caleb. I think coming out of that conversation with Michelle, I think the thing that I have been thinking about recently is um, is just this tension between what are our our rights as people and what are what are our responsibilities as well because they conflict from time to time and they can create some tension and how do you resolve that tension and just what she was talking about with that First Corinthians chapter nine and being willing to build uh, cross cultural friendships and culture cross-cultural relationships and being willing to work through that and being willing to to live in the tension and being willing to give up some of our rights so that we can live out our responsibilities and i think for me like thinking about you know for for me being a follower of jesus of how that plays out as well 
of being willing to give up my rights for my responsibility of loving other people. And just and it's and it's so easy, I think, for us to fill it into a, an either or category. And I think it's much messier than that. I think it's much grayer than that. And it's a there's a third option. It's not binary. And it's not an either or. It's it's a both and and trying to figure that out and how to live that out. And so that's something that I'm wrestling with. And that's why I'm so glad I'm able to talk with people like Michelle and talk about some of these things with her and learn from her as well. And so that's what I learned from this podcast. I would love to hear from you as well. And just some of the things that really stood out to you. And so the best way to reach out to me is my email, which is at Caleb J. Mason, or not Caleb J. Mason. I'm getting so, I was so used to, you know, throwing on my Instagram, uh, but my email is Caleb Mason 91 at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. Would love to hear maybe some of the uh, other things that you would love to hear from the podcast as well, some of the different topics, or maybe there's a speaker, an author uh, that you would love for us to talk with. Would love to hear from you on that. Uh, The best way to make sure that you don't miss any episode of the Learner's Corner podcast is by subscribing on whatever platform you use, whether that be Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Overcast, Apple Podcasts. If you're on Apple, please leave a rating and write a review. Would appreciate it a ton as well. So I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you once again to Michelle for being on the podcast. Thank you to Garrett, who creates the music. Man, I must be tired or something. Thank you to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for the podcast. And thank you to Sam Massey, who actually does the music for this podcast. Super grateful for the both of you and grateful for you for listening to the all the way to the end of today's episode of the Learner's Corner podcast. I think that's all that I have for today. And so until next time, keep learning and keep growing.